you only have until the end of June to get two months of premium access to the fastest growing training app in the world. The Motive app gives you a customized training plan no matter what race you have on your calendar. You can use code SMARTER2 when signing up at mymotive.com, but like I said, this offer is going soon, so take action now. On today's episode, how to survive and thrive in all weather conditions with Andrew and Michael. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. been a long time coming getting Andrew and Michael on the podcast. If you're not familiar, they are the host of the Endurance Innovation Podcast. I uh, featured as a guest on their podcast a couple of months ago, probably October last year. And um, they kind of have a specialty in uh, working in, with heat transfer and surviving in the heat and how to cool yourself down effectively. And when I featured as a guest, they're like, look, anytime you want us on the podcast to talk about heat transfer, um, it'd be great. And I thought, um, is it what the audience wants? And so I asked my fellow patrons and uh, the it, they were on board, about 60% of them were on board. And then I decided to up the ante or generate a little bit more value. So instead of just talking about hot and humid conditions, we're going to dive into all conditions. We're going to go through the cold, how to survive and thrive in frigid, cold, sub-zero, sub-freezing temperatures, um, and then work our way up to hot, humid. Um, we're going to talk about dry versus humid, how that all matters. And the guys did a very good job of tackling all scenarios. And you can just see the passion. Uh, they do like to ramble on. And they did give me a bit of warning that they like to talk. And so that's why this episode is a little bit longer than what um, you might be used to. But nonetheless, as long as the value is there, I'm happy to let them keep talking. Uh, before we dive into the interview, I wanted to try and do a bit of a... Um, campaign to see how many ratings and reviews I can get. So I've decided to throughout these intros to start reading them out because it seems like podcasts do that these days. And, uh, it does help. It doesn't help, um, podcast rankings or featuring higher or anything like that, but it is a good social proof that, um, if someone were to find the podcast and then have a read through the reviews, it's just, um, getting your feedback and your reactions and helping someone who is searching for a new running podcast, whether it is the, the podcast for them. And I always like hearing what your feedback is and what you, um, are just like your feedback on the podcast. And so ratings 
leaving a rating and review is good for that. It's only if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, so if you have an iPhone. Uh, if you don't have one but have access to an iPhone, maybe a family or friend, uh, that would also be a good way of leaving a rate a rating and review and helping out the podcast. Um, so you just go to uh, Apple Podcasts, just in that search, just click the search um, function, type in Run Smarter Podcast, find it, scroll down, it'll say leave a rating and review, and then you can do that. You can press pause and do it now if you'd like. And I will be reading them out. Currently, I have 40 ratings and reviews, and I do hold myself to quite high standards. I want to try and double that within the next month or two. And uh, yeah, I'll be reading them out here. So at the time of recording, um, like I said, we have 40. And there was one that came in just the other day from Fine Gal One. And she said, reliable information. Great podcast, interesting evidence-based information for runners. Thank you very much for leaving that. Um, a while ago, there was um, a review. Well, the second review I can see here from Do A Little Dance. I like that name. <laughs> uh and says, great tool to engage the mind with what's happening in the body. This is where training, running training should start, understanding your body and what it needs to succeed. Really enjoy Brody's enthusiasm and way of sharing information that is relevant to every runner. So thank you for leaving those. There are, I'm not going to go through all 40, but just an example. Um, if you can leave a rating or review, that'd be fantastic. And I'll read it out on the podcast within the next coming weeks. And yeah, hopefully we can get to that um, ambitious goal of 80 reviews all up. Uh, okay, let's dive in. If you, I'll leave the links to the Endurance Innovation Podcast if you really like Andrew and Michael and love the science-y um, deep dive that they do. Um, but a lot of runners are going to take away from this, whether you're in summer, whether you're in winter right now, no matter what part of the world you're in, uh, we can all benefit from knowing how to survive and thrive in all weather conditions. So, Let's take it away. Andrew and Michael, welcome to the Run Smarter podcast. I have been following the Endurance Innovation podcast and like other episodes you guys have been on as guests and um, the wealth of knowledge that you guys have is um, astounding. And I'm pumped to have you on to talk about all of, like the temperature and temperature control. So guys, welcome to the Run Smarter podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brody. Let's, yeah, it was. Uh, it's a pleasure to to be on the show to return the favor because, of course, you were uh, you were a fairly recent guest on our show. Yeah, absolutely. I love returning favors and um, building us up and spreading the knowledge. Uh, Michael, let's start with you. How did you uh, get involved? What's your background, and how did you build this interest around temperature control? Uh, well, so my, uh, my education is in engineering. That's where my degree is and it's uh, mechanical engineering specifically. And, uh, for any of your listeners who, who've dabbled in that field or in that field, um, they can appreciate the fact that, um, thermal rate regulation and thermodynamics more broadly is a, is a big piece of, uh, mechanical engineering or it's one potential direction. Uh, and it was something that I always, I always enjo enjoyed in university and it was something that I actually didn't suck at when I was in school. Uh, and um, when uh, after graduating, I, I did some engineering related stuff, but then um, thought better of it and started coaching about um, seven and a half years ago. Uh, and then, um, you know, thermal regulations is tangentially related to endurance performance, of course, especially in, in hotter climates. And uh, Andrew and I started talking about this because of some ideas that he had that I'll let him talk about. 
Uh, and that is where kind of my educational background and and the the foundations that I understood of of heat transfer from my engineering days um, came to be applied to endurance sport. Cool. And what was your fitness background? Uh, well, I'm an adult onset athlete. Um, <laughs> didn't really do very much. Was not a very active kid at all uh, through uh, through school or university. Started running just because some of my friends uh, were, were doing it. Um, and then uh, when I picked up triathlon, which is, I suppose, my mainstay sport, uh, and about uh, oh, almost 10 years ago, uh, I realized how amazingly nerdy and uh, and deep that sport can be in terms of uh you know things to optimize and and ways to train and you know and any any other rabbit hole you want to dive down uh and it was kind of a natural fit for my for my engineering brain so uh started doing triathlons in 2011 and have been ever since a little bit less now that i have a couple of kids but uh still pretty active and uh and coaching coaching triathletes and runners and cyclists is still my, I would say, mainstay gig. Yeah, nice. And Andrew, what about you? How about you take it away? Yeah, so my background is very similar to Michael's. So I, I did a mechanical engineering degree, and then I went on to do my master's. And then uh, that was actually in combustion modeling. So it was numerical modeling. And then uh, I decided that wasn't enough. So I'm going to spend the next eight plus years to do or at least <laughs> keep working on a PhD. I'm getting very <laughs> close to submitting. Um, but quick fun fact about that is uh, I started, I think, the same year that the students who are coming into university now were born. Wow. Uh, so okay. <laughs> I've basically been a student their entire lives, a post-secondary student. So uh, yeah, my, my research topic, though, is aerodynamics and heat transfer, basically. So numerical modeling of that. But uh, from the engineer engineering standpoint, I love to look at the way the body acts, because I think as engineers, we have a ton to learn, but also as athletes, we have a bunch to learn from engineering and we can leverage a lot of the, the lessons that we've learned elsewhere and just figure out how to control the condition that the body's in. And uh, it just absolutely fascinates me how clever evolution has been with different ways to combat uh, overheating. And it's just, yeah, an endless topic that I think as, as a whole, as a scientific community, we're only starting to scratch the surface of. Great. So I guess we dive into the content. I wanted to structure it, have some sort of structure. So at the start of the podcast, I wanted to get into the colder climates and then sort of as we um, talk about, as we ask the questions and gravitate towards the end of the episode, slowly just increase the temperature and then finish with like the hot climates at the end. So <laughs> let's dive in. I think the most basic question we can start with is let's just say we're at sub-zero temperatures and um, or like sub-freezing, you could call it if you're in Fahrenheit. But um, let's say we're leaving the house, we're dressed appropriately, and then we start our slow weekend run. And uh, as the body starts um, warming up, what do we need to recognize? What do we need to consider? What is actually happening physiologically throughout the body? Who wants to, to start and um, kick us off? Well, I actually have one question about being dressed appropriately, um, because I think when you leave the house, uh, what you think is appropriate is different than five minutes into your run or 10 minutes into your run, because your body's not at a steady state temperature and condition at that point. 
Very true. Um, I guess you do have the luxury of taking off, off clothes while you are <laughs> running. True. So yes. perhaps when we're starting our run, we're not freezing cold we're, um, and we're not warm. I guess we're kind of staying. Um, yeah, and we, we do have the luxury of taking off gloves, scarves, beanies, whatever. But when it comes to how the body is, uh, like you say, regulating its temperature, uh, physiologically, what's, what's happening? So the human body, and we'll we'll get into this as uh, as part of answers to some of your follow up questions, Brody. But the human body is amazingly good at generating heat when it's doing stuff, um, and uh, running is one of the most kind of energetically demanding activities that we can can engage in, uh, more so than cycling, for example. That that Andrew and I spend quite a bit of time talking about. Um, so that means that all of that you know, energy that the body needs to produce in order to propel us forward when we run, most of that is going to be generated as waste heat, right? So you do, you know, you generate the mechanical force to push off the ground to keep going. Um, but a lot of that, uh, the chemical energy that's used to generate that mechanical energy uh, ends up being converted into into heat. And that's just because we're not super efficient uh machines. We're pretty good, but we're not super efficient. I know on the bike, we're about 25% efficient and that's where we have good data. And by that, I mean, um, you know, in cycling, you can get very precise in measuring and I'm sorry to Brody's listeners <laughs> if I use a lot of cycling examples, cause that's where, that's where the science is a little bit clearer, but, um, I'll stick to running, but I'll, I may jump to cycling for some, for some examples. Go for so it. You have cycling, my permission. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. So in cycling, you're about 25% efficient, which means that let's say if you're cycling at 250 Watts, which for any of your cycling listeners is, you know, a pretty steady pace for a reasonably trained human on a bike, um, you're actually generating about about a thousand watts of uh, of total energy. So 750 watts, so three quarters of that is being um, is being generated and just just goes towards running your body and producing that power. So uh, ultimately, that ends up as heat. And um, running is less efficient in, as uh, less efficient than cycling. I would be I would wager to bet. And for uh, any kind of running power, which is kind of which is difficult to measure without lab equipment, um, you're probably producing quite a bit of heat. And so the reason I say all of this, this long nerdy preamble, is that your body's great at generating heat when it runs, right? Um, so kind of the general advice that that we give in uh, sub zero conditions is you want to be dressed so that when you walk outside, you're cold, if it's cold, because very quickly and how quickly depends on how much how much heat you're generating and how cold it actually is and uh certainly on some perceptive perception um characteristics of the human uh you're going to you're going to warm up um and at that point you're going to if you overdressed when you left uh, you left your house you're going to want to be stripping layers which is not ideal cuz then you got to carry this stuff so the kind of the general advice when you're leaving the house and most people who who uh, run regularly in cold climates are well aware of this is to uh, underdress a little bit. Kind of the biggest concerns with uh, with running in uh, sub zero and we're Canadians are Celsius too, Brody. So you're 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 good. We're speaking the same language here. Great. It's only it's only the Americans I think that use Fahrenheit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if you're if you're sub zero if you're below freezing um, the the only thing, the only thing you really got to worry about, and this is really when you're like well below freezing, in my opinion, is frostbite. And so frostbite, um, of course, is kind of the what ends up what 
can happen to some of the extremities. So we're talking fingers, toes, um, tip of your nose, um, and other parts of your face, ears maybe, uh, that are exposed um, that in in very cold temperatures. Because, of course, one of the things our body does when it's cold is it or when it's hot is it actually directs the the flow of blood to and from different parts of the body. And when it's cold, it tries to conserve the blood towards the core where all the vital organs are, and of course the brain, uh, which can lead to some of the extremities, again, those fingers, those toes, and those ears and noses, uh, getting a little bit less blood flow. And if you get less blood flow, you're getting less of that thermal energy from the core, um, and the temperature for those uh, parts of the body may drop, and that's where you can run into a little bit of trouble. This usually only happens for long runs um, and runs in in very cold conditions, though. And if the, let's just say the we haven't dressed appropriately or we're not warming up efficiently. Let's say it's like really, really cold. Um, Mm. And would there be any warning signs, symptoms that the body is administering to know that we're not warming up efficiently or we're too cold? Andrew, do you want to feel this one? Uh, I have, I only have an uneducated (laughs) answer to this one. Uh, I can, I can speak from an engineering standpoint and some, some initial thoughts and concerns I'd have. So, one one thing to consider, um, and this is no idea to predict if, if to to predict if you're too cold, but just looking at it in terms of heat transfer. If, for example, you start sweating, and say you strip off a layer of clothing, um, that would be at risk for swinging too far the other way, because it turns out that sweat is extremely efficient at removing heat from the body. So, so if it is cold, then uh, and or if it's too cold to be really having exposed skin, any sweat on there or any moisture. So say you spill some water or something like that, uh, that will evaporate and drive down the skin temperature significantly, uh, which can lead to local frostbite. So that would be a big concern. So I'd I'd say be very cautious of uh, any initial sweating conditions, especially if it's a longer run and you tend to overcook it at the start. Um, and that may lead to, especially when you're far away from home, that may lead to some some troubling conditions later on. Um, but that's only from the engineering standpoint. I think for the physiology, maybe, Michael, do you have something to weigh in there? Yeah, I think um, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, is that being the, uh, that the human body is very good at generating thermal energy when it's, when it's in, you know, during active exercise like running. Um, and I think you're really, you're not at risk for hypothermia. Uh, I can't imagine a scenario where, you know, you're, you're out and you're running and you are, and it's so cold that you're, that the energy that your metabolism naturally generates when you're running is insufficient to keep you warm. I mean, there's, I, I imagine that if you're so badly underdressed or that it's so cold that you just wouldn't want to be running in those conditions. Like you just wouldn't be able to, you know, get out the door. You'd want to <laughs> turn around right away. Um, certainly, I think the the early signs uh, would be, if there are any, is that kind of that pain and numbness in your extremities, like your toes and your fingers and your face, because that's a sign that your body is rerouting that blood flow, right? And the, the reason the body would do that is to conserve core temperature, right? Which is, which is uh, essential for, you know, well, for living. So um, if you're really starting to feel that hand numbness or, and pain tingling in your, in your fingers and toes and face, that may be a sign. Um, if there is exposed skin, especially on the face, and there's a strong wind chill, um, you you might actually get local frostbite on those exposed skin surfaces before um, before you have any kind of you know again risk of of hypothermia. So 
Bottom line is I think the risk for hypothermia, if you're moving, certainly if you like run somewhere or if you're doing a very long, let's say trail run and you get hurt or stuck um, and uh, you're not moving, then there's a real risk. But if you continue to you know, keep up your high output aerobic activity, I really don't think there's too, too much of a risk of hypothermia. The bigger risk is to, is, um, is frostbite. Yeah. One other risk that I would actually mention there is something it's, it's less of a long-term or sorry, it's more of a long-term risk and less of an immediate risk. But, uh, I've noticed this with downhill skiing in the past because you're cold, uh, you, you don't feel like you're getting much sun exposure, but if you're out and getting all this reflection off the snow, uh, and all this solar radiation, you can actually get sunburns. Um, so it's something to be aware of if you are sp- planning on spending a long time outdoors when it is sunny, but still quite cold. Yeah, and goes back to the limiting. Um... Just stepping away for a brief moment to explain how the Motive app can help achieve your best running results. It's obvious that in order to perform at your best, you need a tailored plan designed by the best coaches in the world that perfectly match your upcoming races, your fitness level, and your precise goals. Well, the Motive app does exactly that. I've been getting some great feedback from You Run Smarter Scholars who have taken up this offer. So if you haven't done so already, you can use code SMARTER2 and get two months of premium access. But this offer won't last forever. So give it a try today by signing up at mymotive.com. And the skin exposure as well. So that mm-hmm. can come in handy. So it seems like um, what we don't want, which is what you alluded to, Andrew, before, is we don't want to get too warm and then swing the other way where we're mm-hmm. exposing direct skin to um, such cold conditions because that could potentially lead to more damage or a a bigger swing in our body temperature which we do want to be comfortable and i know when it doesn't get like below zero here but when it it does get quite cold here in winter and i have like a a 1k block around my house which i would start in like my hoodie um my tracksuit pants and like lay it up and I'll do like a 1k lap around my house and then take one layer off do another lap around my house take another layer off until I'm in shorts and t-shirt and then I go for my usual long run so if there's uh, (laughs) it could be like an option for someone who uh, you know wants to start comfortable with a lot of clothes and then doesn't want to have to carry a whole bunch of clothes once they're on their run Um, I found that very effective for me but like you said if you're in those really really low temperatures um that sun exposure and then the wind chill and just direct skin exposure can um, put people in danger so you might suggest once you are warmed up maybe like a a thin layer of like say a long sleeve shirt that um so you're not having that direct skin exposure but still can maintain like their heat something like that yeah, we've talked a little bit about optimal layering for cold weather runs or cold weather activity of any sort. Um, we're not really subject matter expert. Well, I'll speak by myself. I'm not really a subject matter expert in this, but I have you know seen a bit of research and I've done a lot of practicing. I mean, it's it's probably minus twelve right now in outside. Um, so you want you definitely want long sleeve, and you want the things next to your skin to be uh, to be very efficient at wicking. So like uh, hydrophilic layers. So uh, polyester gen- tends to be pretty good. That's that's generally what what folks make base layers out of. So you want a wicking base layer that is long sleeve, um, and if it's cold enough, then you want to cover your legs. Um, you know, obviously long 
uh, long leg as well. Uh, and you want it to be next to skin. And this is critical because what the, the function of that layer is, is to, it's to provide some thermal insulation, but more than that, it's to wick away, uh, remove that sweat that no matter what will form, you will produce some of it as your, as your uh, kind of your, as your body calibrates its temperature. So you want, you don't want that sweat next to your skin. If you, if you want, if it's going to evaporate, you don't want it ev- to evaporate on your skin, as Andrew said, because if it evaporates on your skin, it's pulling thermal mm. energy from the skin, which you don't want, which is what causes temperature drop and, and potentially frostbite. You want it to evaporate elsewhere. So you, so this wicking base layer transports moisture from the skin to, you know, not the skin. And then depending on how cold it is, you definitely, you probably want something to block the wind. Because even if it's not necessarily super windy, and usually, at least in in Canada, I don't know how it applies in other places, but probably it's the same. But in Canada, our wind speeds are are on average higher. Um, so not only is it cold, but you have the the wind to contend with. Um, and so you want something that is windproof um, on top of that wicking layer to to prevent, you know, to uh, keep the wind off the skin. And then that, that garment should also be somewhat permeable to moisture so that you, so that once the, the, your base layer pulls the moisture off your skin, the moisture can then evaporate through the, uh, the wind blocking layer, uh, to the, to the outside. It won't, you know, you'll still be sweaty and kind of wet, but it'll be way better than wearing a garbage bag. Um, and then depending on how cold it is, you may want an insulating layer in between the two, in between the base layer and the, and the outer layer. This is just some, you know, kind of layering 101 over here. Yeah, um, I can see how you sort of gravitate towards the science of these things as well. You seem to get <laughs> heavy into the nitty gritty. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. One other thing I want to mention, um, and I, I forgot to mention it when I was talking about risks, and this isn't so much of a risk, um, but folks who have, especially asthmatics or people who have maybe a more sensitive um, res- upper respiratory system, uh, can get uh, some airway constriction in the cold. Now, this is an acute effect, so it's not anything that you're, you're, gonna, you're, not, you're not freezing your lungs or your bronchial tubes. You're not really going to cause any permanent damage. But there are, it's quite common to have, um, to have cold weather exercise-induced asthma. And it's more prevalent than like hot weather exercise-induced asthma, which is also a thing. Um, so it's something that if, uh, if you do feel those, if you do experience the symptoms of, uh, exercise induced asthma, if you have, you know, asthma outside of exercise, um, I don't need to say that you need to be careful running in the cold, but you, you may experience, um, exacerbated symptoms of, of that asthma. So it's just something to be aware of, uh, wearing face covering, um, tends to help a little bit because the air that you inhale, uh, ends up being a little bit warmer than kind of free air, but um, you know it's it it's got its limitations too. Okay, good to know. I do have some listener questions that I'll be throwing at you guys throughout this interview, and I'll start with my cool. first one. And um, this is a question from Jill. She asks, "I run in cold conditions. Uh, in brackets, minus twenty eight Celsius. I'm dressed for it and have adapted to the cold and the wind. However, much uh, she's running much slower than summer speeds. No matter how warm my muscles get, is this normal?" And she also asks, "How can I increase my performance in these conditions?" 
Well, I think there's a couple of things there. Um, when I read this question, I, uh, you know, it took me a little bit of time to, <laughs> to come up with some thoughts, but certainly everyone runs a little bit slower in the winter and there could be a couple of, uh, a couple of factors, a couple of causal factors here. So the first and, uh, most obvious or maybe not super obvious is, um, is the surface conditions, right? So if you, if it's minus 28, it's quite likely that she, that Jill is not running on, um, on bare, uh, tarmac. Uh, and if there's snow or ice underfoot, uh, it's just like running on trails or running on sand or, or even worse. So that will, those conditions will absolutely slow you down. Um, and that's just straight up mechanics. You, you know, you just don't have a solid surface to push against. Um, and so that's going to slow you down. So the advice that I give to my folks when they're running on those kind of conditions is to, is to use effort, uh, or maybe even heart rate, uh, rather than pace to, to guide your, your training prescriptions. Um, another thought is wearing all that extra clothing does a couple of things. It, um, it restricts motion a little bit. Like even if you're wearing quite, um, you know, sports running specific, uh, garments that, that are very stretchy and move with you very well. Uh, I at least personally find, and this is of course, N equals one anecdotal stuff, but I personally find that if I'm wearing tights, um, my proprioception is affected. So I, I end up tripping a lot more, especially if I run, if I run on trails. Um, so because my, my, my kind of my awareness of where my feet are is different because of this garment that's, that's not normally covering my legs. Um, so I don't know if there's much of a, much of a real, uh, efficiency hit that you take when you're wearing this stuff. But at least for me, psychologically, it feels harder to run in tights than to run in shorts. Um, and another right point on. I'd make there too is um, the the temperature of your shoes. Uh, and I hadn't thought of this until right now, but the temperature of your shoes might make a, quite a bit of a difference as well. Because hmm. when rubber gets cold, uh, you look at winter tires versus summer tires for cars. Um, there's a significant significant difference in the rubber compound that's used because it's basically designed to operate at lower temperatures. So the shoes themselves may lose a significant amount of efficiency. And I think everyone's uh, kind of been made aware of how much shoes can contribute to efficiency by the the Nike efforts recently with the the Vaporfly and AlphaFly. Um, and there's there's a couple other factors there, but I think the energy recovery from the shoes would be another significant part of that. Oh, that's a cool that's a cool thought. I hadn't thought about that. That's awesome. Yeah, me either. That was great. Um, the other thing that I just um, thought of just then when you're talking about the wearing different layers, I do agree. Like if if you have several layers on compared to um, running in like a singlet and short shorts, you're going to be um, almost not restricted, but you're going to restrict your movements just because you can feel a lot of clothes on you. Um, yeah. And also the weight itself, like there has been studies to show that an increase of like every hundred grams your shoes weigh that um, detrimentally affects your running economy. I think it's by like one or two percent for every hundred grams you put on your shoe. And granted, that's um, because like the because the shoe's so far away from the the actual origin, and it's got like the um, when you're looking at physics, it's like the very end of that vector. But if you've got like th two layers on, like on your legs, and you've got a couple of layers on your, it, like every little gram counts. And if you've packed on two or three layers, that's going to contribute to, like detrimentally to some sort of um, economy. I would imagine. 
Mm-hmm. I, I that was another point I was going to make, Rody. I totally agree with you. I think you know if it's very cold, like in Jill's example, um, minus twenty eight, you could easily put on a kilogram worth of extra clothing over what you would wear in the summer, um, and especially if you're you know a smaller human. Um, that kilogram can be a non-trivial percentage of your body weight, right? Like if you're, you know, if somebody who's a, who's a potentially like a small female who can weigh maybe 50, 50 kilos, an extra kilo is 2% of added mass, right? 2% of mass is quite a bit, right? If you, if you, if you do the math and, uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen similar studies that, um, that show that extra weight absolutely affects, uh, affects running economy. And sure, when it's, the greatest effect is when it's at the end of those pendulums, like your hands and your feet and your calves. Um, but uh, but overall, system mass does make a difference too. Yeah. All right. Great point. Um, we're going to move on to Lee's question. So Lee asks, he's noticed that the heart his heart rate has increased in the cold when he does his workouts and he does his runs. He's asking why and whether it's the clothes, whether the muscles are working harder. Can you guys um, pinpoint what might be the go here? Yeah, I think it's it's very similar to to my answer to Jill's uh, Jill's question. If we're looking at you know what some training platforms will call efficiency, which is in running basically the ratio of your pace to your heart rate. Um, that, you know, the higher you, your pace or the lower your heart rate, the higher your quote unquote efficiency is. It's not to be confused with economy. They're somewhat different concepts, obviously. But, uh, if you're wearing more layers and they weigh more and you're running on shoes, as Andrew correctly mentioned, that are no longer as nearly as springy as they, as they would be otherwise, your running efficiency is going to be lower. That is for the same heart rate, you're going to go slower or conversely for the same pace, you're going to have to produce more internal energy thereby driving up your heart rate. So I think it's uh it's the same um it's the same kind of uh, mechanics. I guess this is a little bit of a, a conjecture on my part, but I think I imagine it's it's similar mechanics. Yeah. Well, I do love when answers have this roundabout way of um connecting and we've got like similar concepts that are um answering multiple questions. That's that's perfect as well. If we have mm. these cold conditions and let's just say we've laid up and let's just say we don't have a lot of skin exposure. What do we, does the um, humidity, whether it's dry or humid matter when it comes to performance and maintaining heat temperature? I know that we'll delve into um, dry and humid climates when we get into the hot climates. But when, when we talk about cold, we talk about sub-zero climates. Um, is there a difference? Well, there's some really interesting stuff that goes on actually with uh, air exchange specifically. So when you're breathing, um, the lungs are designed to, well, designed, have evolved. Um, you can tell I'm thinking of, of this like an engineer, but uh, <laughs> um, the, the lungs have evolved to have a tremendous amount of surface area and that's for oxygen exchange. So basically the same thing that drives this gas exchange uh, will also drive heat transfer. So as a byproduct or just a natural tie-in or um, uh, the, the heat transfer is quite high and the, the mass transfer is high as well in the lungs. So if you have very dry air coming in, it actually warms up significantly and very quickly. So you might inhale air at a low temperature. So say it's minus 28. Once, once it brings up to body temperature, so let's say 35 degrees, for example, the, the relative humidity actually changes. So the absolute amount of moisture in the air 
initially uh, would be the same. So you might have one gram of water per kilogram of air, for example. I can't remember the exact numbers. But air is capable of storing much more water when it's when it's warm, which is why you get in humid environments, you get glasses that will sweat. So if you can imagine opening like a cold beer or something on a a warm, humid day, you often get this sweat on the outside that's just condensation. So when you get this air in your lungs, it's now warm. It's capable of taking a lot of water out of your body. And even though you're not necessarily sweating, you're losing so much water from respiration. So it's uh, it's actually a bit of a problem, and I think people will tend to underdrink when they're exercising in cold conditions. I know I do myself because often you're cool and you don't feel like you want a drink, but you're actually dehydrating yourself pretty quickly. Um, as to the difference between humid and dry air, I think there's it might be more on the external skin that it it makes a difference. So you'll have sweat evaporate quicker, um, and you you will sweat. Uh, like Michael was saying earlier, you will sweat when it's it's a dry condition, but um, it will be wicked away much faster. But the actual amount of water that cold air can can take with it can transport is is quite a bit lower than when you're dealing with more of room temperature conditions. That's great. I love when when I come up with these topics and I have guys like you on. Um, you, you're coming up with answers that I would never, ever consider. So um, it's awesome that you guys are here to to share this wisdom. But I want to move on to warmer conditions. So the next sort of category would just be ideal temperature because even though like the vast majority of, say, races, they're, they're in this ideal temperature, maybe 15, 20 degrees Celsius, something like that, but we still obviously need to avoid overheating. The body's still having these... Um, mechanisms and ways of they've evolved to certain ways to maintain our body temperature what uh let's just say we're doing a long race and we're in say you know 18 degrees um how is the body maintaining our temperature different to say the cold or like what are what are some systems that we need to consider Uh, well (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't sure if you wanted to answer this, um, but there, there are a few things that the body will do to maintain temperature. So like Michael was saying, if you're outputting 250 watts of mechanical energy, and however that gets output as a runner, uh, you're generating, say, 750 watts, which is half of a pretty, pretty strong uh electric heater that you'd have in your room in the winter. Um, So there's a lot of heat coming off your body and your body always has to deal with this. And as soon as it starts to see temperatures elevate, there's this natural, a a couple natural coping mechanisms that will, uh, will fire up. So you get this uh, blood flow is pushed towards the skin basically um, because your body's trying to use your skin as a heat exchanger. It's trying to get rid of extra heat. Uh, Sweating will trigger and you'll, you'll start to, uh, lose your hydration that way, but it's because the evaporation takes away so much energy from the body. So you're you're starting to do these two things already to try and maintain your temperature as soon as you get the slightest little bit of elevation. And it's often with people who are more heat acclimated that they will start to sweat sooner because their body recognizes that this is, uh, this is the natural reaction and it kind of knows what conditions are coming up. So um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, even 18 degrees that you mentioned is, I would say, on the hot side for what a 
like the ideal temperatures for a fast race would be. And you often see marathoners preferring maybe five to eight degrees Celsius because their power output is so high that uh, that in order to maintain a very consistent body temperature and not overheat at the paces they run, they just need to have those cool conditions to drive the heat transfer and keep themselves at that stable temperature. Mm, very good. If If you're finding someone in this climate is like they're looking at their other running mates and they feel like they're struggling. They, they feel like they overheat quicker and they feel like they're sweating too much and um, the other runners beside them seem to be very comfortable. Are there things, are there strategies we can implement in order to help maintain and not feel as overheated? How much time do you have, Brody? <laughs> um, you, you have uh, three minutes to answer. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's, there's a few, there's definitely a few things we can do. One thing I'll echo uh, what Andrew said, um, that, and this is, this is something that, that folks I think misinterpret when they're, when they're looking at themselves or others, uh, profuse sweating is an adaptation. So someone who sweats, um, quite a bit has, is a high volume sweater is actually better adapted at heat transfer because of that. Uh, and <clears throat> Andrew, uh, Andrew didn't get into the the thermodynamics of, of evaporative cooling, but it is tremendously effective. So, without getting into the you know on our show we've 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 thrown numbers at folks, but we'll we'll spare you guys that. Um, but the it's it's by far the overwhelmingly the most effective means of heat transfer. So when you sweat, provided and this is a very big kind of uh, caveat here, provided that sweat evaporates on your skin. Um, similar to what we we're talking about, where you don't want that to happen in the winter because you get frostbite. When it's when you're trying to shed heat, uh, this is a very very efficient way to to do so. So sweat evaporation is very efficient. So if you're if you're a heavy sweater, that is not a sign of lack of fitness. If anything, that is a sign of um, solid uh, aerobic fitness. In fact, one of the first um, one of the first adaptations to endurance training, especially endurance training in warm and hot conditions, is earlier onset sweating and higher volume sweating. So um, that is that's that's you know a tick in your in your uh, favor as a as an endurance athlete. Um, with with sweat, there are obviously some some things that we we need to worry about. We dehydration becomes uh, a serious factor. So for um, for longer races, that becomes that becomes an issue. But uh, let me rewind. So to your question of um, strategies to help, there are some strategies in training, and then there are some strategies in actual um, execution of the of the racing question. So in training, uh, there's some very good evidence to suggest that. Heat adaptation really does work. Um, there are a whole, there were, I don't want to say a whole bunch, but there are definitely varieties of heat adaptation protocols. Um, but the the kind of the what's what's thought to be necessary by uh, by the folks that are much smarter than me is for for individuals to spend um, anywhere from seven to fourteen days adapting to the heat. Um, and what that adaptation actually looks like is spending roughly an hour or more. Uh, it doesn't have to be every one of those 14 days, but let's say five or six out of the seven days of the week at a, at a core temperature of 38 and a half or higher. So um, this is a little bit of a tricky thing to, to figure out unless you have a means of measuring your core temperature. But basically, it's you, you want to spend about an hour in 
uh, an elevated thermal state. So when your body's like, oh, we're quite hot, we need to figure out how to shunt this heat. And uh, during this time, you're probably quite uncomfortable. You're sweating profusely, provided you're not dehydrated. Um, you know, you're still thinking clearly and stuff, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's an obviously elevated uh, temperature state. So if you follow uh, any number of these protocols, that's kind of what you're looking for. You're, you're looking for your body to be at that elevated um, core temperature for you know, a non-trivial amount of time, about an hour, um, six, five or six days of the week about for about two weeks. And again, there are, there are a few of these protocols. There's a few ways to do this. You can go out there and you can train um, without, while removing some of those, some of the things that would normally cool you. So as an example, if you're running in the summer, you can wear extra layers, super uncomfortable, pretty gross, but um, it'll definitely drive the body temperature up. Conversely, you can train during hotter, hot parts of the day, right? When it's, you know, let's say in the afternoon when it's, when it's sunny. With all of these, you have to be extremely careful, folks, uh, because, you know, heat, uh, heat exhaustion and uh, heat stroke are, are legitimate, serious concerns. Um, you know, certainly heat stroke is a medical emergency, and we've talked about this on our show. But uh, even heat exhaustion is not your friend because you don't want to push yourself to the point where you're in serious distress. Um, because not only is it incredibly uncomfortable and could potentially be dangerous, it also delays how quickly you'll recover from that session. So then you can really compromise your your kind of big picture training. So you really want to be careful with with thermal adaptation training. But one way to do it is to cover up when you're training. If you're doing indoor training, like if you're on a treadmill, for example, um, you may want to turn off the fan, right? That's a very effective way to do it. Or again, layer up a little bit. Um, and then some other uh, interesting ways to do it would be train as normal. Oh, one thing I'll say about training while trying to drive core temperature up is you never want to do an intense session. These sessions should always be very, very easy in terms of uh, in terms of your mechanical output. So, for example, if you're if you're running, you really want to be running at your um, you know choose your intensity metric here. You're you're kind of your zone two or sub aerobic threshold, right? So if your listeners are familiar with that, with that concept, um, you definitely want to want to be very, very easy, easier than long run pace, I would say, uh, is the way to do this because you, you cannot be doing interval training, uh, while also trying to drive up core temperature. That's a recipe for not doing anything well and, and, and ending up as a very sad athlete. Um, but the other way to do it is after, after a fairly intense session is you want to jump into a sauna or into a hot bath for, um, and again, durations vary, but for like a good 30 to 45 minutes, because the idea there is an intense training session is going to drive your body temperature up anyway. And then the hot sauna or hot bath is going to retain that, uh, that, uh, temperature, for you know that extended period of time so the research seems to suggest that it doesn't really matter how you get there whether or not you're doing it while you're training uh get by get there i mean driving your temperature up uh whether or not you do it by through training or you do it through just hanging out in, in a hot environment it's going to be effective um but what this what this protocol will do or this uh this approach will do is a few things it'll uh trigger that early onset sweating that I mentioned earlier. The other thing it'll do is it'll actually uh, tend to drive up uh, blood plasma volume, right? Which is the the liquid water content of your blood. 
Um, and that's really, that's really useful because when you're doing a hot race, for example, then as you start to dehydrate, because you're, you're sweating quite a bit, um, you will have more of that margin for before dehydration starts to, starts to affect, uh, affect performance. Okay. You did not take three minutes, but I'll, um, forgive <laughs> no, you. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have, I have a serious trouble. I have serious trouble keeping to my time, time. Tables. <laughs> um, when we're talking about adaptation and, uh, the listeners will be very familiar, hopefully, because they've listened to the start of these podcast episodes and they know that episode one is adaptation education. When we're talking about say, um, load on the body or just adapting as a runner, we know that we, want to find this adaptation sweet spot where we're not underdoing it, where it doesn't trigger adaptation, but we're not overdoing it where you just push the body doing too much too soon leads to injury and break down rather than build up. When you're talking yep. about training and adapting to heat, it sounds very similar that we want to find this sweet spot. We want to heat up the body, maybe putting on some layers or training during hard times of the day, but we don't want to overdo it. We don't want to do intense sessions with like six layers of clothing or we don't want to go out when it's like 30 degrees and try and run at really intense rates to try and adapt to heat. Because like you said, it might take longer to recover, but the you might just put it into too much shock that it's not going to trigger adaptation anyway. Would that make sense? Mm-hmm. Totally. I think you're absolutely, you're, you're spot on. So the, the way with, you know, the, the, the way to approach this style of training would be similar to the way you would approach, you know, any kind of run training, right? When we first, when we take a runner from couch to whatever, 5k, you start out with a run walk, right? So you start very, very gently. So until you establish a useful protocol for yourself and really figure out where your, where your points are, where, how much can you tolerate? How quickly can you recover? It's, it may, Makes a lot of sense to do this kind of adaptation very gradually. So one um, possible route of doing this is if your race is, you know, your race is going to be hot. So you're going to want to do a heat adaptation protocol kind of, you know, two weeks out from that because some of those uh, some of the benefits that I mentioned, like especially the increased blood plasma volume, it's not a just like with anything else, it's not a forever. Um, positive adaptation, it will eventually fade. So you don't want to do your your heat block too far away from your race. So one thing that you may want to try and do is do one well out, right? Just to experiment with what you can tolerate um, and be very, very gradual with it and, and increase your, your thermal load very gradually. So what does that look like? Um, I would still keep intensity very low because that's the hallmark of pretty much every protocol I've ever seen. Uh, but you may want to increase the duration that you do some of these things. You may want to increase the time in your sauna or the time in that hot bath, or you may want to put more clothes on. If you want to get really scientific with it, um, Andrew and I have been really loving this, uh, this device out of Switzerland. I knew this was going to come out. (laughs) You can't not, you can't not bring it up. Yeah. (laughs) There's a device, uh, this is a free plug for these guys, uh, a device, uh, by Swiss company, um, called core uh, body temperature sensor, which is a little sensor. It's like the size of, uh, you know, your heart rate monitor chip. You wear it on the side of your heart rate monitor on the side of your chest, and it tells you quite accurately um, your core body temperature. And with that, you can really get very specific and very accurate um, uh, core temperature readings. And then you can really design uh, thermal stress training appropriately. But without that device, you can um, you you really do want to err on the side of of less 
than rather than more. Because uh, Brody, you're spot on. I, I couldn't agree more with you. You can really easily overdo it, especially with with thermal training, and the benefits will not will not at all be worth it. And yeah. it's just such an interesting thing to see too, because we've never had this, at least at the the athlete level. Maybe at the lab level, they've had this insight, but. For the average person who's training, the the only real ways to measure your core body temperature were either an ingestible pill, which is extremely expensive and for obvious reasons, a one-time use, uh, or a rectal thermometer, which again, the average athlete is probably not going to <laughs> be looking at using this for a training session. So um, this has just been, it's been a game changer for me. And just it's super interesting, both in training and Michael, you've been wearing it outside of training too, just to see yeah. the normal circadian rhythm. Very interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, one so, thing I love, go on. Oh no, I just wanted to like very quickly, this is the second part of your question uh, about what are some of the strategies. So within the race, and I won't spend too much time talking about this, but there's a few really important ones. Um, obviously drinking sufficiently, but not too much to, um, uh, to slow dehydration, you're going to dehydrate during a race. It's impossible to replenish all of the uh, the fluids lost. Um, and I'm sure you've had folks talk about hydration. And I'm not an expert, and I this isn't what we're talking about here. But um, replenishing as much as it's safe to do for your body that's important. Uh, but there are also some really interesting strategies around ingestion of ice and ice slushies that are incredibly useful at bringing core temperature down. Um, and that's because similar to uh, when water evaporates, it takes a lot of heat away from, from well, your body if it evaporates off your skin. Um, this other phase change from a solid ice to a liquid water uh, is also very energy intensive. And so if you ingest ice, whether it's just you're just sucking on it in your mouth or you're actually able to get it into your uh, GI tract through a, through a slushy, um, then you are actually going to be able to shed quite a bit of heat in melting that ice inside your kind of your body. Can we say control volume on the show, Andrew? <laughs> I think it might be a dangerous term to get into. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In your body control volume. <laughs> uh, one, one quick note on that is I ran a couple calculations actually before we, uh, before we got on here just to have an example. So Sweat is still much more efficient. Um, so when you're evaporating something, it's it's very, very efficient at removing heat. So for example, one liter of sweat uh, for myself, so I weigh about 78 kilograms, um, one liter of sweat will cool my body down uh, the equivalent of six and a half degrees Celsius, or it would wow. prevent that increase. Um, and that's if it goes 100% to evaporation. Uh, a slushy would be about one and a half to two degrees Celsius um, if it's, again, fully absorbed by the body. And when you consider that a normal resting core body temperature is around 37 and a half degrees Celsius, and the limit for hyperthermia or heat stroke is 39 and a half, that two degrees is really the difference between being normal and comfortable and being at the verge of a medical emergency. And, uh, as, as we started this podcast, I'd actually just gotten off the bike. So I had a pretty intense bike workout and I got a smoothie and I'm now sitting here shivering because I just had essentially a slushy and I brought my core body temperature down quite a bit. It's a good strategy. I'm not too sure how, like based on training, I don't know how many people have access to it during a, a marathon per se, but it's really cool to know that, um, 
just strategies like that can drastically drop that body temperature. And uh, looking back on my training, say if I was running compared to cycling and you're talking about how effective evaporation can be, um, particularly on the skin, and I look back on my training sessions, um, I hardly ever overheat on the bike and I hardly, let's just say if I, I don't necessarily go on a bike ride during the middle of the day on a 30-degree day, but if I was, say, um, cycling every morning, even if it's in winter and I'm cycling for two hours, I never get warm. It's like I'm almost, I'm cold the entire time, no matter how hard of a bike ride I go on. But then as soon as I'm indoors and I have like an indoor training session, I'm just sweating and overheating um, straight away. So I guess just based on my own experiences and my own self-reflections on um, the benefits or how the body adapts to core body temperature, I think the um, sweat and evaporation, like just in those examples there, just has a tremendous effect. And then you're talking about um, cooling strategies, so cooling things down. Um, if you're, I don't think a lot of people would be able to drink a liter of slushy like just in one go. Is that um, recommended? <laughs> no, uh, I think brain no, that is not recommended. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's not. You never. You know, just from ingestion of fluids, you never. You wouldn't want to chug a, a liter of any any kind of fluid or you know fluid like solid slurry just because of uh, what kind of GI distress that would cause. But the point is, you don't have to do it all at once. The You're absolutely right too, Brody. In a, in a marathon, you're not going to get this, but um, you may get ice, right? So in, in the hotter events, I know definitely in triathlons, you will have ice. So one of the strategies is to pop one in your mouth because it, does, it as long as it melts inside your body, right? Whether it's in your, it's in your GI tract or in your mouth, um, it's it's going to have some positive effect. Even if you just hold it in your hands and you kind of close your hands around the ice cubes, uh, sort of make a like a loose fist, um, and that ice melts in your hand, it's not going to be as effective as if you'd swallowed it, but it's still going to transfer quite a bit of ice. Oh, quite, excuse me, quite a bit of thermal energy away from, from your skin and from your body. Yeah, good to know. Um, what I've liked about this as well is your you're also answering a lot of the future questions I also have. So I was happy for you to, to ramble on and keep um, keep talking because I now have to ask less questions. But um, we're delving into now the hot climates and um, how we can thrive in here, which you've pretty much already discussed. We can train for adaptation. And um, one of the questions was from Lee and Lee said that they had a, a nightmare half marathon in 31 degrees Celsius, was going at race pace, and then the heat um, caught up with Lee and um, w- is was wondering, like, should we, in these hot conditions, should we be running to heart rate to better manage our effort or energy output, or um, can we still train or, or, I guess, adapt to the heat and then still um, do a race pace based on speed. So no, the, <laughs> that's a very easy answer is that in, you know, in 31 Celsius, that would be considered an extreme kind of conditions, even if it's quite dry. And I know, notice you have a question about humidity, which is super relevant too, but even if it's quite dry, 31 Celsius is very hot. Um, and so even, and if it's dry, you will still have access to uh, the evaporative cooling. In fact, it'll probably be very effective. Like if it was 31 in the desert somewhere, uh, in the outback for you guys, um, you would you would 
you would have uh, evaporation as a very, very useful uh, form of heat transfer. But there is no way of getting around the fact that you're um, that you're not going to perform at your best at 31 Celsius as compared to what Andrew was saying at, at the optimal temperature between 5 and 10 degrees Celsius, which is kind of generally touted as the best marathon temperature. Um, yeah. Now, normal, so if Lee trains at 31 degrees all the time and 31 degrees is normal and whatever Lee's race pace at his normal <laughs> Uh, 31 degrees. If he's racing in those conditions, then that's his normal. But then, of course, I imagine that's not what he, what 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 they had in mind. Uh, but also, then, if if that was Lee's normal, then if they ran at you know 10 degrees Celsius, they they could go a lot faster. Yeah, and I can share a very similar experience as well. I was training for a half marathon a couple of years ago in Melbourne in winter. And um, it was, I went to travel around in Europe and had a couple of half marathons booked there. And one of my half marathons was in Amsterdam. And so I was traveling around Europe for maybe a week before doing one of those half marathons. And I trained in winter in Melbourne, um, which would have got to around maybe between 10 and 12 degrees is what I was used to to running in. Then went to do this half marathon in Amsterdam, in Amsterdam and it was probably about 17 degrees. So not hot. Um, maybe about 18, but I struggled so much. Like it got past the point of me just struggling and I started getting like a headache, started getting like, I started to feel like really sick and lightheaded, started to feel sick in my stomach. And, um, I just had to walk for like the second half. I just could not do anything Uh, based on those symptoms. Do you think I just hadn't adapted to the heat? Because I only just realized later maybe the next day that maybe i just hadn't adapted to the heat. i didn't think about it during the race would would that make sense for you guys so i asked you before we started the show uh brody if i could if i could curse on this podcast so i'm gonna do it here um and, <laughs> and say that physics is a bitch so it so there is some adaptation that you can do but heat transfer is heat transfer is heat transfer so if you push your body past a certain set point um and it's different for different people and there is there, you can probably train it a little bit, and this is more psychological than physiological. So you can probably train to tolerate a higher core temperature and not, not you know, get totally washed out like you did um, and still be able to perform. There are dangers with that because there's like some chemical processes that just don't work very well at above our kind of optimal temperature. And then that's when you get into heat strokes and like hospitals. Um, and there are people, it's really hard to drive yourself there, but there are people, uh, who are known to have this ability and often end up in, in those tents because they can just push themselves beyond this set point. Uh, so that set point is real. So in terms of adaptation, um, maybe if you'd been more, uh, you know, psychologically adapted, you could have pushed a little bit further. Um, and if you'd been more physiologically adapted, maybe you could, you would have had slightly higher blood volume. Maybe you would have started sweating earlier. Um, and you probably would have had a little bit more, but if you're talking about, um, this effect happening halfway through the race, I don't think there's anything you could have done in your training that would have allowed you to run at that pace in those conditions for the half marathon, right? So then the only, the only real answer would have been that under those conditions, the smart thing to do would have been to slow down, right? Um, or, or, in, you know, f- run into a, a 7-Eleven en route and get a big, <laughs> get a big gulp and, uh, and, and chug that down. Right. Unless you had, unless you had some kind of active cooling strategy, I don't think that there's a way that you could have 
um, done that race at the pace that you set out to do? It's it's a little bit tougher for long races, but you do see athletes occasionally pre-cooling themselves with ice vests mm. or if you have something before the race, like a cool drink uh, or, yeah, again, the slushy, um, that will at least kind of buffer you for that heat, uh, the, the temperature increase so that you're at least offsetting. So it'll be longer before you hit that that critical point and have to slow down. Um, but it is a really tough one. And there, there's been good research to show that uh, highly trained athletes maybe like to the pro level, maybe have more tolerance to this. And there's one study in particular I'm thinking of, it was done for time trial cyclists in Qatar in 2016. Um, and this, this study actually showed that uh, first of all, people are able in terms of core body temperature are able to go much higher than previously expected. So I think some athletes were reaching 41 and a half Celsius, um, which is basically if you were to take that measurement in a hospital, normally someone would be basically at the verge of being, well, at death's doorstep. Um, but with these athletes, yes, they were hot at the end of the race, but, uh, but they were able to psychologically tolerate it as well as physiologically tolerate it. Now there's a difference too, between the brain temperature being 41 and a half and the core temperature being 41 and a half. But, um, yeah, the, there is some evidence that different people may react differently to this. Okay. Well, it makes me feel better because I was definitely beating myself up and extremely disappointed when I had to walk for a second half of a half marathon. But um, yeah, makes me feel better. Let's delve into humidity because Erin asks, how can we cool down in these humid conditions? And is there a point where it's just too much to run outside? But let's break this into um, uh, the, the components. So if it is hot and if it is very humid, is there any strategies we can do to cool down? So cooling, as we've mentioned many times, happens mostly through evaporation. There's some convection, so basically like having wind go over you. Um, but hot air going over you is only slightly more comfortable than just being in still hot air. Um, so, and I've actually done a, a laboratory study. It was for for cycling, but it was in a humidity chamber. So it was like 80% humidity and 31 Celsius. And it was 45 minutes at uh, for cycling at about 75% of my threshold power, which is pretty uncomfortable by the end of it. And under these conditions, you're basically storing all of the heat. There's no real way to get rid of it. You're not convecting it away. You're not uh, evaporating it away. So when you are in these hot conditions, um, there's only so much you can actually do. So if, if it's nice and breezy, um, it's it can remove a little bit of heat, but really maintaining that body temperature with any means possible, um, that's really what I'd recommend doing. So if you can have access to ice and slushies. And I think even it wasn't this discussion, but the previous discussion that we had, I think it was when you were on our podcast, Brody, uh, we had talked about cooling your wrists down. Um, if you can put ice directly on your wrists, um, this is actually an adaptation that I believe kangaroos have, uh, developed where they would lick their, uh, their inner arms because the evaporation there, uh, there's a lot of blood flow going through your wrist and that basically takes it right back to your core. So if you can apply ice to that, it's a very effective way to lower your core temperature. Um, but there's only so much you can do in these hot, humid conditions. And I think of something like Hawaii where the Ironman world championships are held most years, except this year. Um, but it's, 
it's an extremely challenging place to race and it really tests people's ability or their body's ability to to manage their heat. So we should be like accepting the limitations of the human body and if you are stuck in a hot humid condition maybe just like be sensible and take mm-hmm. your fluids and just drop your intensity and you know don't try and um compete at a race where you might be um like at a race pace where it is cold conditions would that be right yeah yeah i think there's definitely some some concessions that you have to make uh one other thing that we haven't touched on yet that uh, just popped to mind is we've also talked uh in the past michael and i've talked about different clothing um and yeah there's there's wicking and things like that to consider but there's another big part if you have the sun beating down on you if you're wearing a non-reflective piece of clothing then you're absorbing all that solar radiation and that can actually increase your your body temperature quite a bit and i think the the calculations i'd done before were saying that a cyclist can pick up to uh pick up approximately another 200 watts of solar radiation um which is not an insignificant amount to add to their thermal load so if you can essentially reflect that away instead of absorbing it that can help you especially when you're just at that tipping point where it's just too much heat um, that can help you from, from reaching that overheating level. So are we talking about lighter colors that can um, reflect light or are we talking different um, components of the, the clothing itself? Lighter colors for sure. Um, so if you can keep the, the sun off of your skin, that's ideal. Um, so there might be some cases where, uh, and I've seen these before for cyclists where they have arm coolers, um, but basically when they're white, even though you're wearing that extra layer, um, it reflects away the the radiation or the temperature, the energy that would otherwise be absorbed by your skin. So I, I, I've never tried them. I don't know how effective they feel. Um, they're also supposed to help with evaporation too, but uh, but just if you can prevent that energy from ever getting to your skin, that's definitely a benefit. Yeah, great. Yeah, to Aaron's question, to Aaron's question, I think that's the only thing you can do is if it's super humid. I agree with what you guys said. Is really the only thing you can do is go slower or don't go at all if it's a, if it's very very uh, humid and hot. Um, but if it's a if it's not a race, if it's uh, if it's training, then certainly training outside of daylight hours is an advantage. I remember spending some time in uh, in Singapore where it was you know always thirty degrees and one hundred percent humidity every single day. And I was trying to run there and it took a little bit of time for my body to like get used to it, but I could only run after sunset because that those extra, you know, 200 Watts that, uh, that Andrew mentioned, well, that's peak probably noon, uh, mm-hmm. heat flux, but, um, it definitely, it definitely helped. The other thing with, um, I'll add to, to Andrew's point is the psychological component. So we, we feel a lot of that of that heat on our skin, right? So uh, what you felt was was definitely a systemic effect when you during that half marathon, uh, Brody, when you felt sick to your stomach and you you were lightheaded. But generally, we feel hot or cold on our skin because that's where the the temperature sensors are. the the the, the nerve um, the nerve components are in in the skin. So when you when you have direct sunlight on the skin, it feels quite hot. Because you're directly feeling that solar radiation, uh, and covering that up with with clothing or you know running or training when it, there is no sun or at least it's cloudy uh, removes that psychological input 
telling your body that it's hot. So there's definitely a physiological component of that extra 200 watts, but also a psychological one too. Okay, Michael, I'm going to I'm going to really test you with this next one. Are you ready? Because I'm going to give you one sentence to answer this question. Because er, Aaron, in the second could be component, a, could be a run-on sentence. <laughs> the second component is like: is there a point when it's too much? Like, if the humidity and the temperature is too much to run outside, what what do you what's your one sentence answer for that? Uh, yes, uh, you can probably imagine a point where it's, where it's too much. Uh, I think most people can, provided you can slow down and you're not doing very long runs, you can do, you can run in most conditions. Yes. Most conditions, but probably not. (laughs) Cool. Cool. Very good. Um, I've got one last listener question and I'm curious to hear your guys thoughts, um, cause it's sparked my curiosity. Steve asks, in some cultures, having hot drinks to cool down is counterintuitive, but it's meant to cool down the body. Um, What about for athletes? Does temperature of the drink matter? Now, we've already talked about the slushy um, stuff and how it does cool down the body's core temperature quite significantly. Um, Anything we can add? Has there been any um, investigations into having hot drinks to try and cool us down? So my assumption, and this is not based on any direct science that I can reference at this point, and Michael, feel free to <laughs> please correct me or stop me if I'm saying something inaccurate. But Nope, I've if, never seen research on this either. I mean, go ahead. <laughs> my, my complete conjecture would be if you drink something hot, it may trigger you to sweat. And that sweating would then lead to a larger net reduction in temperature than the energy essentially that you're bringing into your body for uh, or with that fluid. So that's, that would be my best guess as to why that would happen. That's my guess as well. That was, that was the only thing that I could, uh, I could come up with too. Yeah, cool. And I guess we're not um, drawing from evidence. I think there might have there might just be. I might have to reach out to Steve. But it seems like there there might be some cultures that have hot drinks without being any scientific explanation. But yeah, good to know, guys. Uh, anything that we haven't touched on specifically around the heat? Any like kind of final tips um, or tricks that we haven't talked about on how someone can survive and thrive within these hot conditions? A couple of final points, and this is just to tack on to what I was saying earlier about heat adaptation training, is you 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 want to be very careful with how you do it. So for the most part in training, um, I would encourage folks to to train during, you know, moderately not hot periods of the day or or conditions, especially if you're trying to do quality work like intervals or tempo or any kind of race pacey stuff um, in order to get that quality work in. And saving the the heat adaptation stuff strictly for heat adaptation, not trying to you know kill two birds with one stone here. Um, but it is important to be to be both physiologically and psychologically prepared for it. So if you are if you know that your event has potential to be hot, and the perfect example is the maybe upcoming Tokyo Olympics, where all the national federations are are really working hard to adapt their athletes to the heat because the, the games are expected to be very, very warm. So if you go into an event, and again, Brody, your example was the best one where you came from uh, a 10-degree environment to an 18-degree environment, which is not a huge swing, and you suffered seriously, 
Um, if you are training in a cool environment, which happens to us Canadians all the time because, you know, it's cold in Canada and uh, in the winter. And uh, there are lots of early season triathlons in the in the southern U.S., for example. And people like to do those races because they're tired of being cold and, and snowy and dark up here. So they'll train indoors and they'll run outside and then they'll go to Texas and they will die because it's they've gone from, you know, zero degrees to 20 degrees and they just they just cannot perform. So you have to have to have to have to spend some time adapting to it in order to perform. You just triggered another thought there for me, Michael. But uh, talking about the Tokyo Olympics, one of the guests that we had um, interviewed on our podcast, Erica Gavell, she had done some research on actually using a menthol rinse uh, to basically convince your body that you're cooler, which was shown to improve performance. Um, so this is more for short events where it's not the steady state temperature that you're fighting, but uh, short intense events like having this perception of being cooler at the start of it can actually help. Very cool. Yeah. And some really nice tips. And I think we summed that up really nicely. Guys, um, the Endurance Innovation Podcast, if someone is wants to know more about it or if they're, they're not sure what it is, um, can you just give us a brief, a brief summary of the, the nature of it, who its uh, intent is for and um, where they can go to, to find it? Well, I think we could probably start by saying if you're not already scared off by our discussion here <laughs> and going into the scientific details, uh, that's something, this is this is a regular departure for us. And we absolutely love nerding out over heat transfer and aerodynamics. Um, and then there's a lot of other things that we've been talking about recently too. With uh, We've got a couple upcoming shows that, uh, depending on when this episode gets released, have been talking about uh, using AI to help guide your your training schedule. Um, so I think this is pretty typical of an episode that, that we'd see. Yeah. So, um, Brody, thank you very much for the plug. It's, uh, it's available on pretty much all of the podcast aggregators. So your Apple podcasts and Spotify's, um, and Deezer's and all of them, iHeartRadio, we're on all of those. And if you just look for endurance innovation, you'll find us there. We, uh, on social media too, I'll, uh, I'll post episodes with some regularity because social media, I, I'm, I really like heat transfer and aerodynamics, but social media is not always my friend, but, uh, my own coaching account is X3 training on, on Instagram. Um, and I will usually post when a new episode drops, but certainly the best way to follow us is just to subscribe, uh, to the, to the podcast feed we uh we release uh weekly and uh yeah it's just it's two mechanical engineers talking about endurance sports uh with, <laughs> with some really some really smart guests um uh, from time to time so i do uh, i do encourage your listeners if they're interested in this kind of uh nerdy banter to uh tune into that show yeah and i'll include all those links in the show notes and um i'll also include one of your podcast episodes i think it's like really early days um it's called it's getting hot in here so if people are interested (laughs) and want to delve deeper and like i said if you're focused on the numbers of getting into the nitty-gritty and the science heavy um topics discussions then that's a great episode for you to delve straight into so i'll include that in the show notes andrew and michael you guys are a fantastic team i can see you guys feed off each other very well and once one person's talking the other it sparks an idea in another person and then you do you guys just tussle back and forth really well which makes for a really engaging podcast and if anyone is um really loves what you're saying and 
they've worked out that you guys being from like an engineer background can really translate super effectively into a, a performance based topic um then they will love the endurance innovation podcast and so um once again thanks guys for coming on and sharing your wisdom thanks so much it's been a ton of fun yeah thanks brody we obviously love talking about it and any opportunity that we get will uh will turn one sentence into four Thanks once again for listening. To take full advantage of the knowledge you are building, you need to download the Run Smarter app. This contains all of my free access podcast episodes, written blogs, and eBooks, along with my paid video courses, all neatly housed into categories for you to easily navigate through and find content you're interested in. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for links to the podcast Facebook group and links to learn more about becoming a podcast patron who contribute five Aussie dollars per month to get Inner Circle VIP access, including an invitation into the exclusive patron Facebook group and a complete back catalogue of patron-only podcast episodes, which you can access within the app. Also on the app, you can even find a link that takes you to my online physio clinic, where I assess and treat runners from all over the world, so I can be on standby if you ever need one-on-one physiotherapy assistance. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter Scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.